You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Matt Taibbi is the author of Smells Like Dead Elephants, Spanking the Donkey, The Great Derangement, and Griftopia. He's also a contributor to Rolling Stone. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Matt, uh, as we in America like to frame everything as a war against this and a war against that, your latest blog entry is uh, yet another look at our continuing war against regulations. And as you write, it's not a war of ideas. It's a war of attrition. Right. Yeah. No, this is a consistent theme that we've been covering for years at Rolling Stone. Ever since the financial crisis, obviously, there have been numerous attempts to establish some basic rules that to prevent the kinds of activities that happen on Wall Street leading up to the crash. And every time anything, even the smallest measure passes, they find a way to beat it back. And the the issue isn't so much that the public is so much against the new regulations. It's just that there's so many ways to attack new laws, whether it's in the court, whether it's the rulemaking process, whether it's filing new legislation, that if you have enough money, you can just keep at it until you get what you want. And that's, and that's kind of the lesson of, of these stories. It's, it's like instead of sending in a giant Trojan horse through the gates, they're sending in the parts underneath the gates <laughs> to assemble themselves into a giant set of holes in the financial regulatory net. Right, right, exactly. And, and, and the key thing is you know, the, these are issues that are extremely difficult. They're technical. They're boring. And the, the banks that are trying to change the rules, they have total mastery of this material. They know exactly what they want. They know exactly what they're asking for. While the public, completely uneducated about things like the derivatives markets, and they don't understand it. So even, even if everybody was aware that these kinds of debates were going on in Washington, uh, Wall Street would have the upper hand because... They know what they're looking for, and the average person has a very steep learning curve before they can even argue on any of these questions. They control the language, so they control the debate, and it sounds like it's to their advantage to make it boring. There is absolutely a conscious effort on Wall Street to keep all of this material cloaked in a kind of camouflaging verbiage. It's a very, very jargon-rich business, but particularly in the area of these new financial innovations in, in the derivatives market, um, it's an entirely new language. It's, it's as foreign as Esperanto or Japanese. You really need to know what, what all these terms mean, and that essentially puts it out of reach for the ordinary voter. They, you know, there's a reason why, for instance, it was illegal for slaves to be literate back in the day because you know the powers that be didn't want that part of the population understanding what the issues were and this is you know that's a strong metaphor but this is a similar kind of situation they they, they intentionally do not want people to understand this stuff and thank you for writing a blog that goes quite a long way to making these incredibly obscure issues 
uh, not just uh, comprehensible, but fun to read about. And I really enjoyed reading about your discussion of hedging. That word in itself capsulizes exactly what they're trying to do with everything with regards to getting rid of the Dodd-Frank Act. It's, yeah, the, the hedging thing is amazing because, again, it really speaks to how this entire debate can come down to semantics. And if you control the language and you control the semantics, then you can control the politics and you can, can control the rules. Now, the rules, for instance, in, in Dodd-Frank, they prohibit certain kinds of trades, or at least they force certain kinds of trades to be regulated except, and here's where they put in a loophole, except when the trades are hedging. And what is hedging? Hedging is when, essentially, you, you make a kind of investment that would offset uh, a loss you would make in a different investment if it went wrong. So it's not supposed to be a directional bet. It's not like real gambling. It's just like an insurance policy. So Wall Street essentially finds a way to describe almost everything that it does as hedging, and therefore hedging is exempt. Uh, I know that sounds complicated, but if you think about the uh, the infamous London Whale episode of last year when Chase lost all that money, uh, this was a, bu- a bunch of guys who were essentially making a very, very complicated gamble on corporate credit. They bet an enormous amount of money, and they lost an enormous amount of money. They kept doubling down over and over again, and they kept losing. But when it all blew up, the bank tried to claim that this was a hedge, and it wasn't a hedge; it was a bet. And it's just—it's—it's it's hard to explain, but it, the whole regulation comes down to whether or not you—you uh, you believe them when they use these terms, and it's—it's it's a hard argument to to counter. One of the things that we've seen too is the conversion of the word insurance into essentially be equivalent to gambling. Well, right. The, the funny thing about derivatives is there, there are a number of, the pro, uh, of these new derivative products that function uh, in, a, in a way that's similar to insurance, but they're not insurance. You know, what, well, one of the key characteristics of real insurance is that in, insurance is capitalized. If you take out an insurance policy, uh, a life insurance policy, then you're paying uh, money towards that policy constantly. Uh, the insurance company itself has to have adequate capital reserves to pay out that policy should uh, should that be necessary. And so they have to actually have money, whereas credit default swaps, which are sort of the new derivative kinds of insurance, the person who is selling what they call credit default insurance doesn't have to actually have a dime at all. This is actually gambling, but it's even more risky gambling than you would see in a casino. A casino actually has to have money when it, when it invites you to sit down and play blackjack. Derivatives dealers do not have to have any money at all when they sell credit default insurance. That's why AIG went under. AIG sold about a half a trillion dollars worth of these credit default swaps, and they didn't have any collateral to back it up, and that was one of the reasons that it collapsed. Politically, this all comes down to to a death of a thousand cuts, not as opposed to uh, just repealing the Dodd-Frank bill, which is what I think all of Wall Street would really love. And in itself, it has many problems. They're just peeling away at the edges of it, aren't they? Yeah, and and they will be successful at it. And again, this is something that most people don't realize. When the law is passed, that's not the end of it. You, you pass Dodd-Frank, and 
essentially what it does in the legislation is that it it lays out broad guidelines. We want to we want to sort of generally achieve this. We we would like derivative trades to occur in this kind of exchange or this this sort of facility. Um, but they don't say exactly what it is because that would take forever, and and obviously members of Congress can't be bothered to be writing the actual rules for how interest rate swaps are traded. So what they do is they defer it to the regulators, and the regulators sit down, and for the next year and a half or two years after the legislation is passed, they write the rules. But they don't write the rules themselves. They, they sit down in meetings where there might be, in a room of 22 people, there might be 18 industry lobbyists in the room all talking about how we're going to set up this market. And there are almost no lobbyists on the other side. There's maybe one or two organizations that represent people like you and me, and they can't be at every one of these meetings at once. So it's, it's really, there are so many ways to affect legislation beyond the actual debate. There are lawsuits, there are these rulemaking sessions, there are amendments to the legislation. It's just that people don't realize that the process never really stops. We have inverted the fox-hen-house ratio. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, I was actually at, in Washington during the Dodd-Frank debate, and I remember I was in the office of one of the, the, the tri-state area senators, let's put it that way, and there were so many lobbyists in that guy's office that I didn't have a place to sit. I had to actually go out into the hallway. And they're all industry lobbyists. Now, if you actually look at the polls on these issues, you'll find that the public overwhelmingly supports things like ideas like derivatives should be traded on exchanges same, the same way that stocks are traded on exchanges. But if you look at the number of lobbyists, it's, you know, a thousand to one on the other side. So it, this is, again, it's just the, the imbalance of money skews the picture, and that's, that's how you end up with this odd result that doesn't correlate to, to what the public actually wants. You enter the matrix, and there are 10,000 Mr. Smiths waiting to greet you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's, it's maddening. I mean, it's fascinating, but it's, it's a maddening thing. And, I, and, and it's a test of endurance that is very, very hard for the people who work in, in the Senate, for instance. You know, I know staffers who work for people like Bernie Sanders and Jeff Merkley and Carl Levin, and they have to just keep, going back to the same drawing board over and over again and keep and keep fighting back those Mr. Smiths who keep coming over and over again. And it gets tiring. It gets tiring. But the banks never get tired. They never, because they can just hire new people, new lawyers to, to attack the same problem. And there's an endless amount of money to go towards that. They'll always be back. Now, you also talk about something that I think is a little bit more alarming. The European Commission raided the oil companies in a price-fixing probe. And this seems to spread out like an ink stain across all financial markets from here to eternity and back again. Yeah, this is a story that, you know, I've been personally trying to bang, you know, uh, um, sound the alarms on for about a year now it to me it's it's like it's an incredibly important scandal that that has spread across the financial markets we've had one case after another of anti-competitive market manipulation 
obviously before 2008 we had a massive scandal that mainly involved banks committing fraud. What what was what was the basic scandal? They were taking mortgages that were risky and toxic and they were selling them as AAA rated securities and that was just a simple fraud scheme, but it was done across the industry. But that was far less destructive than what's going on now. Now we have banks and corporations working together to rig the prices of all sorts of products, everything from interest rates, which we saw in the LIBOR manipulation scandal, um, to the price of energy, which we just saw a couple of weeks ago. J.P. Morgan Chase was nailed for rigging energy prices in Michigan and California. The prices of gold and silver are under investigation for manipulation. Prices of interest rate swaps, there's a major investigation going on there. And now we have this case in Europe where apparently the world's biggest oil companies were getting together and they were rigging the prices of retail gasoline. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's suspicion that it goes on in the commodities markets, in wheat and corn, jet fuel. And this is just industry finding a way to, to put an extra tax on all of us by rigging the prices to make them higher. And it's, it's kind of an invisible scandal that people aren't paying attention to. And I think that's one of the things that that your ability to publish so quickly on the web to get this stuff out there on Rolling Stone, which is a major uh, venue that has a lot of clout, uh, that's really important. And I would like you to just talk about trying to draw in some of the other media. Is that possible? I mean, who else, where else can we find out about this stuff? I think that there, there's a small community of reporters who do care about these issues. Clearly, the New York Times has done a lot of really good work. They have a reporter there, Gretchen Morganson, who's really been on top of a lot of these things. Um, the LIBOR story did get a lot of play in Europe, not so much here in the States, mainly because the banks that got caught have not been American banks yet. But the problem with all these stories is that they're too complicated to do on television, and they're boring. The networks have had a, a, a pronounced disinclination to go anywhere near any of these topics, despite the, the fact that they're far more important than anything that, that they are talking about in network news, you know, except for maybe the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is something that's central to you know the whole question of do we have a free economy or not? Do we have capitalism or not? I mean, they're, they're huge, weighty questions, but we can't go anywhere near it because it, it takes longer than 10 seconds to explain. So it's really left to print reporters to, to, to kind of go at it, and we just have to hope that a couple of people on TV occasionally look into it, but I just don't think it's going to be sufficient. I think, you know, they, it, it really requires level of attention that the mainstream press isn't capable of. Well, I have to say that your prose makes all this stuff really entertaining to read, and I think it's a model that we should look to for more reporters to write lively, entertaining, and completely, I think, disrespectful prose <laughs> about these people. Well, that's, that's nice of you to say. I mean, obviously, this is a tough topic. I think, you know, you have to use some fiction writing techniques to to try to get people interested in it, you have to you have to villainize certain characters. You have to you know humanize the topic a little bit so that people people can kind of see what it is. And so you have to use a lot of figurative language to 
explain, you know, some, you know, this this racket is like is like X. It's like this mob movie that you saw that you've seen before, and you have to put it in ways that people can understand. Because again, if you just strip it of all the the verbiage, uh, it's just ordinary garden variety stealing and manipulation. It's the same crimes that have been committed over and over again for you know thousands of years. It's just they do it with lawyers and they they do it with with dull language. So. Um, you just have to find a way to cut through that and, and make it interesting for people. I've been speaking with Matt Taibbi. He's that pesky reporter who goes after the supervillains on Wall Street and around the world. His latest column for Rolling Stone is Deja Vu on the Hill, Wall Street lobbyists roll back finance reform again. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Well, thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.